The study that was recently published in HBR by economist Nicholas Bloom, what he found, this was studying hybrid work before COVID for sure. And what he found was that when you give people the choice, like, do you want to work from home or do you want to work from the office? More women than men are likely to work from home because they have that caregiver role. They're taking care of, in this case, you know, with women and children. And what he also found, though, is that it happened to be that people that are in the office more and have more FaceTime, like physical FaceTime, are more likely to be promoted into leadership roles. So lo and behold, after 10 years of studying organizations that were using flex work, and the ability to choose your time in the office or out of the office, it ended up that men were more likely to be promoted than women, not because the company was explicitly trying to discriminate, but because of like this implicit, unintentional discrimination due to the structure of the work that men were just more or the workplace that men were more likely to be in the office and therefore more visible. And so I think for me, the lesson from that is, is that like, yes, younger generations do want flexibility, but don't let them choose that amount of flexibility they get, right? Everyone gets the same amount of flexibility and then they choose what that looks like for them. So I think that was the big takeaway I took from that study. And I think that's why we're getting much more into this leadership by results. And you can talk about like there's many different terms for that, but essentially it is managing people and promoting people and doing performance reviews based not on where they're doing it or how many hours you're seeing them do it, but you know what kind of results do they deliver? And I think in these cases or what we're seeing now, it is even more and more and more important to have a really clear idea of what do we want to promote based on? What are our criteria? What does a leadership model look like? And are we being fair in how we assess people? Are we also ensuring that there's not bias built into this criteria that yes, it is dependent on seeing you in the office, in the FaceTime, etc. I'm your host, Michelle King, joined by Kelly Thompson, and you're listening to The Fix, a podcast that shares the stories of remarkable people who are innovating and taking action to advance equality in the workplace and beyond. As the entire world works to contain the spread of coronavirus, the role of effective leadership has been brought into razor-sharp focus. What people need now are leaders with empathy, compassion, and the ability to show support, skills that research finds women leaders tend to exhibit more than men. And while it may take a global pandemic to finally acknowledge the unique talents and capabilities that women leaders offer, companies shouldn't wait until there's a crisis to afford women an opportunity to lead. It's a trend we've seen before. The 2008 financial crisis was a result of irresponsible risk-taking that ultimately came down to poor leadership and organizational priorities. Research examining risk-taking behavior finds that men are more prone to taking high risks. Increased collective risk-taking behavior contributed to the crisis, which was an outcome of male-dominated workplaces that valued one way of working and one way of leading. Subsequent research has found that women tend to adopt a much more relational approach to leadership, which is more effective in a crisis compared to the traditional command and control style of leading, which is typically adopted by men. Overall, women leaders adopt a relational style when leading through a crisis, which is highly effective because they focus on building trust, alleviating fears and managing the crisis at hand. 
But this isn't to say that we only need a relational style of leading. The future of leadership is ambidextrous leadership, which requires leaders who can engage in a wide range of behaviours depending on what the situation requires. These lessons extend beyond crisis situations and into the everyday modern workplace. Research has consistently found that women tend to adopt a more transformational leadership style, which includes demonstrating compassion, care, concern, respect and equality. In contrast, men are more likely to tend towards a more transactional approach, which includes a more task-focused, achievement-oriented and directive style of management. Macro-influences like the technological revolution, globalisation and climate change have already fundamentally altered the world of work. The pace of change has been put on turbo blast during the pandemic and it shows no signs of letting up anytime soon. AI and automation will change the way that leaders lead and replace a significant number of mid-level manager roles with self-managing teams, while senior level leadership positions will include a lot of the same tasks like setting a vision and executing a strategy. Leaders will need to do these things in a slightly different way a relational, transformational way, focused on the connections between them as leaders and their teams. The future world of work needs adaptable leaders who can lead diverse teams, manage conflict, delegate, coach and support their employees to collaborate. To survive the changes which are coming, we need new ways of working and of leading. Joining us on today's podcast is Professor Jennifer Jordan, a social psychologist and professor of leadership and organisational behaviour at IMD. Jennifer will explain the evolution of good leadership and what each of us can do to prepare for the new world of work. Here Jennifer shares how leadership positions are changing. Leadership is changing in numerous ways. One is where power comes from. So, I mean, power was essentially situated at the top and now it is moving much more down the hierarchy. It's all about empowerment. The world is changing at speeds that we've never seen before. We always thought life was moving fast and it's just moving faster and faster and faster. I think it also has a lot to do with, and this is related to power, who do we need as leaders to learn from? It used to be very top-down, like the leader mentors his or her younger employees. And now it's quite the opposite, right? It's like the leader is expected to learn from those who are lower than them in the hierarchy, this idea of like reverse mentoring. The leader used to really be valued for their gut and their intuition, and now it's much more around, does the leader know how to use data? Disruptors are the new competitors. And so a leader needs to also be not just an expert in what they do immediately in their environment, but also hyper aware of what's going on in the outside world, opportunities and threats on the horizon. And it's a lot more about adaptability in leadership and being able to adapt to the changing environment around you as a leader, rather than just being constant and consistent. And then of course, you know, what we've seen in the last couple of years with leadership going virtual, where you know your team is no longer sitting around you, but you essentially have to do the same thing leaders always did, which was already a challenge, like influencing, motivating and enabling people, but now do it virtually and remotely. In the article entitled, Every Leader Needs to Navigate These Seven Tensions, Jennifer, along with two other authors, share that in recent years, articles have claimed that the old command and control style of leadership is out and a new relational style of leading is in. Instead of telling people what to do, leaders now need to ask them open-ended questions. Instead of sticking exactly to plans, they should adjust their goals as new information emerges. 
Instead of working from the gut, a leader should rely on data to make decisions, and so forth. Here's the challenge. In the current environment, most executives need to be good at both styles to succeed. That is, any leader who relies solely on positional authority or transactional traditional approaches will run into trouble. Businesses, technology, and workforce expectations are changing much too quickly for that approach to be sustainable. But at the same time, any leader who fails to strive for perfection, who never tells and only listens, and who shares but never holds power, will also struggle to be effective. Here Jennifer explains why leaders need the freedom to adopt either transactional or transformational approaches depending on what the situation requires. The older model of leadership was leaders were very much intuition-based, using their gut. They were much more about telling, which I think is that command and control style that you talked about. They were perfectionists, like everything had to be right. There was no room for error. There was no room for experimentation. Much more constant in their message, much more tactical, holding power and really going deep. Like they were the experts and they were often put in the role because they were the technical experts of what they were doing. And now we see what we call like the emerging model of leadership, which is the leader being much more of a listener, the leader being able to use data to make decisions, the leader being able to work at speed rather than just being a perfectionist, making sure everything is perfect, really driving things forward. And we see this like a lot with the agile ways of working, et cetera. The leader being able to adapt and being comfortable with ambiguity, the leader having a clear vision for the future, the leader being able to share their power. And then, as I mentioned before, like the leader really being hyper aware of these opportunities and threats that are around them in their environments. One to think about it in terms of transactional versus transformational in the sense that like a transformational gets people to do things based on inspiration and based on giving freedom and giving trust. Whereas a transactional leader gets people to do things based on incentives and rewards and punishments. And we say this also in our own research on, we call the seven tensions of leadership in the digital age is that it's not just one or the other. And when I work with companies, I mainly work with companies around digital transformations. The role of incentives still play a huge part, right? If you're trying to get people to do X and your rewards or incentive systems are still rewarding for Y, it's not really going to be useful, right? So I think there does have to be this inspiration and vision, no question about it. But that doesn't mean that you know, the role of incentives are completely lost and obsolete. So I think it's a really interesting way to think about it between transactional and transformational. As expectations of leaders change, to get ahead, companies are going to need to be clear about what good looks like. This needs to go beyond a set of competencies or corporate values and be understood and embedded as well in daily practices, in how things are done around here. Companies need to reset the standard for what good looks like by cultivating an environment where leaders are called to lead in a way that's most effective depending on what the situation requires, rather than on a one-size-fits-all idea of what makes a good leader. Let's think about it this way. If we're not explicit about the standard we're holding our leaders to, we could default to outdated leadership ideals where FaceTime in the office and a command and control approach was celebrated as the unquestionably best way of getting things done. Here, Jennifer shares recent research findings on this. The study that was recently published in HBR by economist Nicholas Bloom, what he found, this was studying hybrid work before COVID for sure. And what he found was that when you give people the choice, like, do you want to work from home or do you want to work from the office? 
more women than men are likely to work from home because they have that caregiver role. They're taking care of, in this case, you know, with women, children. And what he also found, though, is that it happened to be that people that are in the office more and have more FaceTime, like physical FaceTime, are more likely to be promoted into leadership roles. So lo and behold, after 10 years of studying organizations that were using flex work and the ability to choose your time in the office or out of the office, it ended up that men were more likely to be promoted than women, not because the company was explicitly trying to discriminate, but because of like this implicit, unintentional discrimination due to the structure of the work that men were just more in the workplace and men were more likely to be in the office and therefore more visible. And so I think for me, the lesson from that is, is that like, yes, younger generations do want flexibility, but don't let them choose that amount of flexibility they get, right? Everyone gets the same amount of flexibility and then they choose what that looks like for them. So I think that was the big takeaway I took from that study. And I think that's why we're getting much more into this leadership by results. And you can talk about like, there's many different terms for that, but essentially it is managing people and promoting people and doing performance reviews based not on where they're doing it or how many hours you're seeing them do it, but you know, what kind of results do they deliver? And I think in these cases or what we're seeing now, it is even more and more and more important to have a really clear idea of what do we want to promote based on? What are our criteria? What does a leadership model look like? And are we being fair in how we assess people? Are we also ensuring that there's not bias built into this criteria that, yes, it is dependent on seeing you in the office and the FaceTime, et cetera? Gender inequality exists in workplaces because we believe that women are simply less capable than men. This shows up when men say things like, she needs more time to round out her experience, or even she needs more time to prove herself. Experience is not the issue here. Women have to overcome the widespread belief that they're just not as competent as men. Research from the University of Kent found that male job applicants with a high level of leadership potential are rated as a better employment prospect than a female job applicant with a proven leadership track record. We assume that men are capable and have what it takes to do the job, so we don't weigh actual experience as heavily. It's just not that important. Here, Jennifer shares why valuations of potential are less important than providing opportunities for people to demonstrate their potential. People are labeled based on potential and they get tracked into the school system based on what the system says their potential is before they've actually realized it. At the same time, I also have learned from working with companies for almost two decades now, I guess. If you promote people when you absolutely know they're ready, it's probably too late. And so I think it is this challenge that goes both ways of by promoting based on potential, we are actually in some ways labeling people both negative or positive. But at the same time, if we only promote based on realized results, we're probably promoting too late. And we probably are also promoting certain types of people that have opportunities to already demonstrate their potential. So I see the positive and negative. So what's the solution here? I would say that as much as there's a labeling that goes on with the talent pool, I think like preparing talent and having a succession plan and identifying talent is really important in your organization, both for retention as well as for promotion. At the same time, I think people need to be given opportunities 
early on to show that potential rather than betting on the actual potential that you think they have for those reasons of labeling, right? And there's many examples we can think about in organizations where people have been labeled as, you know, the top talent or having high potential and that's never realized or people that were totally ignored and have become real superstars. So I would argue more than promoting for potential, give people equal opportunities to demonstrate their potential by giving them stretch projects and challenges and and all that without the, the formal promotion actually coming yet. If I could go back to when I began my career sometime back in the late 1800s, the one piece of advice that I give myself is to know that my ideas had a value and to not be afraid to say those ideas out loud nor assume that everyone would have already considered them. Here Jennifer shares different advice for each of us depending on where we're at in our careers. I would answer that question differently based on where they are in the career, right? So if they are later on in their career, so let's say mid to late career professionals, mid to late career leaders, what I would say you need to do is hone that curiosity and be learning about new technologies. Even if you think, you know what, in five, 10 years, I would be gone. This doesn't matter to me. I think always be that hyper aware leader. What's on the horizon? Curious, you know, that growth mindset. What do I need to learn? If you're more towards the beginning of your career, my advice, because we actually saw, and this was shocking to me, that the demographic that was most negatively affected by this pandemic were 18 to 24-year-olds because they were starting their career, but yet they were totally isolated. And we know that socialization in a team is so important for starting our careers and developing that network and to getting allies and all of that. So for those who are more at the early part of their career, my main advice to them would be find ways to be building that network and a multi-generational network, especially if you are working mainly in a remote environment. What are things that you can do to really start connecting with people, creating your allies, finding role models, et cetera? Because I think right now, hopefully we are going to be going towards more physical working where these young people can be working in a group and be socialized. But I think that effort to do so is going to take a little more effort. It's going to have to be ratcheted up a few notches. And I also think we know how important that network is for those at the beginning of their career. One of the greatest challenges leaders are currently experiencing is holding on to talented people. The great resignation is a phenomenon that describes the record numbers of people leaving their jobs after the COVID-19 pandemic ends. At the onset of the pandemic, the job market was full of uncertainty and mass layoffs. Millions of people lost their jobs and those lucky enough to remain employed remain put in their roles for survival. However, as we now turn towards the recovery, workers are moving on. And here, Jennifer shares one piece of advice for leaders who are struggling with the high rate of resignations. So I would say the last thing I would recommend or I would think about is that as all of these accoutrements of the physical workplace start to go away, like the travel, that used to be a reason that people love their jobs or the really cool workspaces with you know, the espresso bar and the snacks and everything like that, as those are becoming less salient and less obvious, you know, the purpose of what we do, the essential purpose of what we do, I think becomes much more important. And there's evidence, you know, with the great resignation, I don't think people are just resigning because they want to be out of work. They're resigning because they're 
having this existential crisis or existential question of, wow, when all of this is taken away, do I really like what I do? Do I really believe in what I do? And for me as a professor of leadership, I see this questioning happening much more. We can see it on a grand scale, on a macro scale, but I see it also on a micro scale. So my advice to employers in this is to really be able to articulate what is the purpose of the work that your employees do and what is the greater good that they're serving. Because if you can't answer that, it's likely they can't as well. And that's why I think people are going to be leaving or have already left. Like a deep why, we can all have a why, right? Like, why do I do what I do? Well, it's because by putting piece A and piece B together, it makes this whole part. But I think that why has to have more meaning than it did before. That why really has to resonate with people and it has to resonate with their values and who they are. Because right now with the the market as it is, if the why they're working for you doesn't resonate with them, they're going to go and try to find where it does. And that might mean working on their own. But we do see this kind of existential crisis. So it's not just finding the why, but making sure that why is really meaningful and it really resonates with people and who they want to be. Leadership is a practice. It's something that people do to motivate, inspire and engage employees to achieve the organisational goals. We put leadership into practice by responding to our environment and to the people in it. A 2013 study found that the most effective leaders draw on a range of leadership traits, depending on their environment. And in the future, the best leaders won't be restricted to one way of leading by outdated stereotypes. Rather, they'll be ambidextrous as they can flex their wide range of capabilities, depending on what the situation requires. In turn, These leaders will encourage their employees to display cognitive, emotional and behavioural flexibility to best achieve the organisation's aims. Not every work environment needs either a transactional or a transformational leadership style. Some may require both or a mix. When we force leaders to conform to one way of leading, we prevent them from being able to effectively adapt their skills to meet the needs of any given moment, situation or environment. But versatility is critical to effectively lead and respond to the changes and increased complexity coming our way. The goal for organisations should be to create an environment where leaders of all genders, characteristics and backgrounds can apply their capabilities in new, innovative and creative ways to solve the problems at hand and enable their employees to do the same. And that is the beauty of inclusion in action. Thank you for tuning into our episode today. If you're interested in partnering with us or being a guest on the show, then please reach out through our website, thefixpodcast.org. You can also sign up to our monthly newsletter and contribute your story there. Thanks again for tuning in and I'll catch you all again next week.